This is Aliens and Artists. Part two of our conversation with Bruce Alderman. I'm your host, Stuart Davis. Bruce begins this episode relating how he came to transcribe 100 hours of footage from Stephen Greer's Disclosure Project and also participate in CE5 protocols with Greer himself. I got the opportunity to go out to Virginia. Actually, I was invited to be an editor for a a newsletter that a, a Tibetan Dzogchen Lama was creating. And so I got to live at his house. Um, he had a bottom floor that he rented out to me and my, my new wife at that time. We were just living there, learning Dzogchen and different things like that. And I first was doing menial kind of jobs, trying to, you know, besides the, the newsletter editing. But eventually I got a job with a court reporting firm and started doing that. We mostly did transcripts of grand jury testimony and things like that. But in the midst of of that work, we were approached by Stephen Greer if we could produce transcripts of some audio tapes that he had. I didn't talk directly to Stephen Greer at that time. My boss did, and he made the deal. Stephen Greer's wife came, and she asked to meet me in a parking lot, in an underground parking lot area. So I met her in this underground parking lot area, and she passed this box full of cassettes off to me. And she remarked at the time, don't tell anybody you're working on this. Someone else we had working on this ended up getting harassed. So please just keep a lid on it and just produce these as quickly as you can. Um, And I really didn't know what it was for, but they did say that they were going to end up presenting these transcripts to Congress. So I worked on it. It was about a hundred hours full of recordings. And they were, as anybody familiar with the Disclosure Project will know, basically interviews with military individuals, NORAD employees, pilots, Navy people, police officers, and also just ordinary citizens and scientists. Um, So it was a a big range of, of tapes. I don't think that everything I listened to and transcribed ended up making it into the, you know, the final disclosure project files that were submitted to Congress, but definitely it was full of very interesting and compelling testimony. It definitely made me, even after some of the unusual experiences I had had, more of a believer that something truly anomalous is happening, that people really are witnessing these things and whether all of it is human generated or extraterrestrial remained an open question for me but it certainly seemed like what a number of these people reported the scrambling of jets to go follow you know something tracked by norad or different unusual things that people described their experiences of you know pulse weapons and things like that it seemed like a lot of these things were beyond our capacity and some of them weren't so it was an interesting mix of some things that seemed like on the leading edge of our technological capability and other things that seem to well exceed what we apparently should be capable of it's an interesting note you were there studying dzogchen when this disclosure work arose greer of course is a longtime meditator 
consciousness features in his CE5 protocols? Do you feel Zogchen was a link that connected you to him, or was that incidental? I don't know. I don't know if he knew about me. So I, I would say at the level of conscious decision-making, probably not. I don't think he was aware that I would be the one actually doing the transcription or, or what you know anything about me. But if I think about just the overall synchronicity of events, I don't think it's surprising that this came to me, given his deep interest in meditation and, and the way I would ultimately resonate with it. I think he is drawing more on Hindu tradition, but to me, it looks like maybe Shaivite or other kinds of Hindu tradition that has some parallel or overlap to dimensions of Dzogchen or Mahamudra. Interesting. So you've transcribed a hundred hours of this Disclosure Project testimony. You've got a history of your own experiences. Did this amplify or redirect your desire to explore more? What happened next? I did explore more, you know, based on what I was transcribing. I, I, I started looking at the field more. Um, after some of the experiences in Sedona, I also had dipped into the field more. And at that time, I, I believe that, what is her name, Linda Moulton Howe or something like that? She was publishing some things that were showing more ominous sides to some of these kinds of encounters. So I had dipped into that and been a little bit disturbed by what she had seen. One of the, the things that I, I would mention that relates, that made it very disturbing for me, was when I was in living, living in Sedona, one of my friends who also was homeless, and he was also living out in the wilderness, he reported to me that he had been wandering somewhere and came across a canyon full of dead animals, cows, horses, and other animals that looked like they had been skinned or ritually cut. And it really, really scared him. And he left it. So <sighs> I don't know what to make of all of those kinds of things, but he, he found where there were, you know, probably he, he said more than 100 animals out there. Good God. So cattle mutilations, one of the first episodes of Aliens and Artist was with Christopher O'Brien, whose tome, Stalking the Herd, is a classic in this area. It's still going on to this day. The canyon your friend reported seeing with upwards of 100 mutilated animals would be the largest body count that I'm aware of in this disturbing phenomenon. Are you still in touch with the witness? Could they provide more detail regarding the location? Unfortunately, I think not, not now because he's passed away. He, he was you know, homeless then and he also had a, a terminal illness. So he was just basically living out his last couple years. What came next for you after transcribing the Greer testimony from the Disclosure Project? Probably the next notable thing, especially related to the themes of your podcast, was I was contacted by an old friend of mine, Tom Clearwater, and he was following Greer's work. And this was some years after I had done the tapes for the Disclosure Project. And by this time, I had moved out to California. My friend Tom, he lives in, in Canada and has, I think, independent money from oil and other kinds of business. So 
he was following Greer's work and had decided to donate a lot of money to Dr. Greer for the production of another movie, which eventually became serious. For whatever reason that prompted him to do that, he donated half of that large chunk of money in my name. And Greer remembered me from being the one who transcribed the Disclosure Project tapes. He reached out to me and invited me to come along on the next CE5 expedition, which was going to the UK. And he would pay for everything for me and my wife to attend that event, kind of in thanks for my name being on that donation, also for my work for the, you know, working on the Disclosure Project tapes. And so I took him up on the offer. I wasn't certain about what's going on with this whole CE5 thing. I had heard him after I did those tapes for him. I used to listen to him on the radio talking about especially alternate energy sources and, and, and what's being repressed and those kinds of things. So I'd been somewhat interested in his work, but I hadn't followed it very deeply. But after I got this invitation to go out and do that, I, again, started digging into it more. I was not certain what to think about using meditation to make contact or the kind of machines that he used out there to pick up signals and field energy field distortions or, or whatever they're, they're sensing with those machines. I, I thought it could be just a bit of, of nice you know, shamanic theater, or there might be something to it. I wasn't sure. So I, I went in a little bit skeptical, but interested just to see what would happen. And for me, it actually proved to be a pretty interesting experience where definitely events that I can't explain or rationally explain away happened. And that proved pretty compelling for me. There are things that happened throughout, but probably the most powerful events occurred when we were staying out all night near the Barrow Mounds next to Stonehenge and doing you know, our protocol and meditation. As you normally do on the CE5s, you sit outside in a circle and you meditate and you kind of just watch the skies and open for any experiences. So what had happened, I think the night previously, we had been doing one evening meditation and, and sky watching. And as that concluded, since Dr. Greer said the next day we'll go over to, to the Stonehenge, he just said, go to sleep tonight and just ask if there's going to be any indications of what we can do next or, or what we can expect or any messages or just open yourself up in your dream to whatever kind of communication you might get. So the next day when we met in the daytime at first, several people reported having experiences, including my wife who had an experience of seeing an alien craft moving over water. This was unusual for her because she is from rural Nepal, grew up her entire life in the Himalayan mountains without electricity, power, TV, anything. So in other words, she grew up entirely outside of our cultural milieu and is not somebody steeped in anything about UFO lore or anything like that. She just came along with me to the UK because she thought it would be cool to see England and the Stonehenge. But she ended up having this intense dream of a craft moving over water and was able to describe it pretty well. But another 
a person who you know described herself as an intuitive said that she got basically four messages that she said that we should look at the zenith of the sky in our next session that most activity was going to be at the zenith of the sky we should watch out for any temperature changes that there were going to be subtle manifestations um, in our group session and that they whoever they were were going to do open heart surgery on dr greer and so we didn't know exactly what that meant but we we did our tour of stonehenge and then we gathered again in the evening at the barrow mounds off to the side of stonehenge to you know have our evening session and you know it's cold on these english nights and we always wrap up and sometimes it's drizzly so it was a you know a cold night but a very clear night we had uh, just a magnificent starscape and we were able to watch the skies and there there was indeed um, activity that we saw that was unusual light activity some towards the zenith and some on the sides but one thing that we saw right at the peak of the sky that was really pretty interesting was three points of light you know in a triangular formation moving together across the sky and then at one point the three lights just separating off and all flying in different directions so you know it's easy you know we we've got many many satellites up in the sky so i think you know when you're watching up in the sky you're definitely going to see satellites or space debris sometimes reflecting light but those three triangles or that triangle of three lights that moved in formation for a while and then separated and all of them shot off in different directions at a high speed to me that looked unusual it doesn't look like satellite activity so we saw that he led us on a med meditation you know he usually tries to kind of bring you through different techniques into a causal or a formless state and he so he said he was going to lead us to a causal state and then just open to whatever subtle experiences arise and it proved to be a very powerful meditation that night i immediately went deep and i found myself looking in a very vivid visualization of this kind of a bunch of nested structures that i could see all around me these kind of rooms or structures honeycomb like structures moving closer and closer towards this core where there was something i had the the feeling that there was something powerful and tremendous at that core but the meditation ended before i ever reached the core and when he checked in with other people about what they experienced a number of people experienced seeing a pyramid like form they found themselves from the outside beholding like a pyramid like structure and one person said they saw something that looked like two pyramids meeting at a point so my feeling was whatever i was experiencing it felt like being on the inside of a structure like that moving towards the central peak or, or you know or the core of it different things happened you know we saw those lights of course one person was taking photos actually it was tom my friend tom was taking photos right after that lady had mentioned the you know open heart surgery thing he took the picture and it looked like a a pink light was coming out from greer's chest and uh, he passed the camera around and we all could see that several people reported seeing orbs or kind of luminous 
things within the group. This night, somebody reported that there was a very large orb right behind and between me and my wife. And that actually had happened on another night a few days ago. Somebody else had seen this large light hovering behind me and my wife for some reason. So they saw those things. Suddenly, you know, normally Dr. Greer had this like green laser light that he would point up at the sky and he was pointing up at different constellations. But suddenly we noticed that all of the night birds had gone quiet. It was deathly still. And there was a cloud bank directly above our heads, maybe 20 to 30 feet over us. I mean, you know, not high at all, maybe even lower than that. And Dr. Greer shone his laser light on it. And it was just like ending, just like just a little ways above our heads. And it was just covering our whole area. And it was completely silent. And it was suddenly very warm. When I turned my face up to that cloud, it felt like I was like facing a radiator. You know, if like you have a radiator in a room in the winter where, you know, you know that there's the cold around you, but that heat is just immediately on you. So I felt that radiated heat on my face from that cloud bank. And we sat there and we didn't really talk very much. We just sat in the silence and beheld that and felt that. And then kind of mysteriously, it was just all gone. It was like almost like we didn't notice how it went away. It just, it was there. And then suddenly it's like people coming out of it and saying, hey, where is that? You know, and we look around and it's clear open skies. So we broke up our camp, our our little chairs and things, got back on the bus around 3 a.m. and 2 to 3 a.m. and went back to, you know, our hotel. The next day, I think we went out to Avebury and looked around at the stones there. And then we went to a pub, local pub to you know, just have something to eat. And while we were at the pub, sitting at our, our tables and somebody had wandered inside the pub to go order a drink or something like that. And while he was in there, he met a woman. They just started talking and he found out that she was a crop circle expert and regularly kind of patrolled the area for crop circles. And she asked him, did you know that a crop circle appeared last night? He said, no. And she said, yeah, it appeared just near the barrel mounds of Stonehenge last night. We spotted it in a helicopter this morning. It's on a farmer's piece of land, which that farmer's fence was right up against where we were. We were right at the edge of his fence by the barrel mounds. But we didn't know that. We didn't know what was on the other side of that fence or anything. So she said she had a picture of the crop circle that she had taken. She showed it to him on his phone, and he brought it over to us, and we all looked at that crop circle. And the crop circle looks like a bunch of concentric squares all meeting towards a central point. In other words, like you would be looking at a pyramid from above. So everybody was struck by that image and how close it felt in its form to the kind of visions that people were having spontaneously uh, from the meditation. Dr. Greer said, let's try to make arrangements to go visit the, the crop circle the next day. So he asked that lady and she contacted the farmer and the farmer said, absolutely no one can come on his land. So we just went over by his fence the next day and did a session during the daytime and tried to look over to the fence. And we could see some area where it looked like some grass had been pushed down, but we couldn't see any pattern. But we, we stayed there. And my wife at some point 
just mentioned to the people around her, I got to go to the bathroom and she ran off. But actually what she did is she just jumped over the fence and went into the man's field and she went into the crop circle and she found it and she said it was exquisite, very, very huge, beautifully constructed. The stuff on the ground was absolutely flat and just like perfect clean lines. And she'd never seen anything like that herself, but she felt like she was in the middle of a a sacred space, and she came back kind of in awe from that experience. I've noticed a pattern. You <laughs> you jump onto rooftops when black helicopters pass over your home, and your wife hops fences and leaps <laughs> into fresh crop circles, a match made in heaven in that regard. As to the CE-5, we don't get a lot of accounts from inside of the CE-5 events, perhaps because it's quite private. There are release forms akin to NDAs and whatnot. When I tried to attend a CE5, I was told no disparaging skeptical views would be allowed. You know, you can't attend and be negative. Fair enough. It's his gig. That's his call. I don't begrudge him for controlling such parameters during private events. But given your experiences, I wanted to ask you what your feelings are considering Greer's adamant view that all genuine ETs are benevolent and that all negative contact experiences are false flags. Humans masquerading as ETs, my labs, etc. He's quite black and white on this issue. So what's your take on his take? I'm not a believer in that. I listened to him make a case for it, that he feels that travel at these kinds of distances is not, in a way, physically possible. It's metaphysically possible, meaning that there needs to be certain kinds of consciousness development, even to enable being able to move across space-time in this way. I felt it was a reasonable argument that he made, but it also seemed hopeful to me in terms of like wishful thinking hopeful. I'm not convinced myself that you can't develop consciousness capacities and still remain undeveloped in other areas or make the Darth Vader move as Ken Wilber likes to put it in integral language. I I believe that there is definitely a possibility that whether that level of consciousness attainment is necessary for for interstellar travel, I don't know. You know, I know Strieber definitely touches on the idea that there's something both physical and, and at the same time seemingly subtle or consciousness related about some of these events. So I'm willing to, from my own experiences as well, in a way that there's this kind of overlap between concrete physical experiences and visionary experiences, that there's some kind of blurry boundary there. I'm, I'm definitely willing to go with that. I'm not convinced that every negative encounter is man-made. I'm not convinced that every encounter is ET. I I do think there probably is a mix of man-made and potentially really extraterrestrial or interdimensional things going on. I feel like there's a a bit of a, a religious belief that the people who are close in the the CE5 community hold that makes it feel like a version of a UFO cult. So I hold some skepticism around it. I have to say that I really did 
feel that there were some unusual and authentic things that happened with him. So I wouldn't write it off, but I would definitely say I, I don't agree you know, that that is necessarily the case. And I'd like, to, I'd like to know your thought on that too. Do you feel that there possibly could be some negative experiences from, from non-human entities? Well, I'll share my present opinion only because you ask. To begin with, I concur with you. I, I don't dispute or impugn the efficacy of, of his contact protocols. I'm convinced, given the frequency and caliber of success stories from people I respect and know, one such instance is documented in episodes, let me look, 20 and 21 of Aliens and Artists with Jennifer Sodini, in which she recounts an astonishing group sighting, which was initiated using a quite gingerly application of Greer's protocols. It's a cautionary tale with very grave implications for would-be initiators of contact. It didn't end well for those involved. Granted, it was complicated. It's not veridically clear that the CE5 protocols attracted negative entities, but it is clear negative entities were either alerted by the arrival of the first group of entities summoned, or were alerted by the protocols themselves. And they fucked with her life in a very serious fashion. So I've personally felt that Greer's baffling black and white views seem cavalier at best and dangerous at worst. One needn't look long or far afield to find incredible accounts contradicting his notion that all non-humans are benevolent. To me, the simplicity of that view is naive and reckless. Survey the work of Hopkins, Mack, Jacobs, Yvonne Smith, Barbara Lamb, and you will find healings, transformations, developmental drivers, insights, but also intergenerational trauma, invasive transgressions, manipulation, distortion, Stockholm Syndrome, violations so vile they would land any human being in jail for the rest of their lives if they were to commit such acts. It's just not reasonable to claim that is all human-generated. I personally appreciate the breadth of Sean Esbjorn Hargan's taxonomy. You can have highly developed negative beings and neutral and benevolent, corporeal, interdimensional, subtle and causal. We just need a more integral taxonomy. So that's a long response, but I feel it's way more complicated than Greer paints it to be. He's plainly a highly intelligent person, lifelong meditation practitioner. He's made tremendous contributions to the field, but his worldview baffles me. Is it genuine? Is there some subterfuge? Is he part of a calculated strategy? I'm not opposed to people being proactive and initiating contact when it's safe and advisable to do so, but we need protection, hygiene, discernment. Anyway, that's my take at the moment. In the spirit of that discernment, I wanted to ask you about high strangeness and how pre-rational, rational, and transrational stations of consciousness each respectively read such encounters. 
Whether Skinwalker Ranch missing 411 or CE5 events, perhaps, as an integralist and a transpersonal special agent, let's say, (laughs) can you speak to the confusion we find around these distinct registers of consciousness, pre-rational, rational, and transrational? Do they apply to the high strangeness, the anomalous? Is it useful for us to overlay such distinctions on the anomalous, or should we simply remain in unknowing and try to meet the phenomenon on its own terms? What's your take? I think that's one thing that, you know, for me has been instructive and growth producing, you know, about these kinds of encounters is inviting you to suspend your frames. And so I think that that is, you know, sometimes you do encounter things that really just defy easy categorization. And so I think we should always let such things puncture us and allow us to, you know, open to possible other insights or framings. In general, I could say from my perspective, uh, looking at it from an integral lens, in terms of what I encounter among people, in terms of the way that people hold these experiences, then that lens makes a lot of sense to me. And I, I definitely see that. I think, unfortunately, for the UFO community, there are a great number of people who relate to it in a pre-rational way and want to run after it and follow it as a new mythology where it's just really exciting and fascinating to, to dive into that and to, to fabricate stories or to just imagine into their own experiences maybe more than is there. Um, I, I definitely encounter that both among CE5 people and outside of that, that I, I felt that they were relating to the experiences from a pre-critical point of view and that that doesn't ultimately serve us in the long run. I don't have actually any problem with allowing yourself to enter into that space, being non-critical and just receptive to whatever is happening and to allow even the nonsensical and absurd to inhabit you and, (laughs) and just experience what's there. But at some point, I think you do have to step out and be able to take a critical perspective and assess it and try to bring in methods and lenses from multiple disciplines so that we can really do the best work we can around making sense of these phenomena. And so um, fortunately, though, we also do have people who are quite brilliant, and I would say also spiritually and psychologically developed individuals who also have these kinds of experiences and uh, have to wrestle with their implications. And so I I do see very clearly good rational work being done to make sense of these things and to try to critically assess them. And I think that's vital. We need more of that. I think it it seems to me that there is a kind of soft disclosure going on and that we're being invited more and more to think critically about these things because they're being entered into the, the public circle as things to take seriously more than they, I felt that they were before. So there is a kind of soft opening towards that and towards being able to take that more seriously. And with 
the overlap of some of these experiences with intense spiritual kinds of experiences and visionary experiences, I definitely feel that there is the potential for realizing transrational dimensions of those things, meaning that rationality is not suspended, but it's reframed by experiences which I think, you know, if anyone is honest, you can see that some of what's happening puts us very much up against the edge of what we know and maybe what we can know at this time and invites us to bring in more of our beings than just the rational mind to try to receive and make sense of and navigate and orient within these kinds of phenomena that are going to require more of us to really properly grapple with. And by more of us, I don't mean more people, but I, that, that too, but I mean more internally, more of our own centers of intelligence and meaning-making and sensing. We're going to have to learn to work better with those multiple dimensions of ourselves. And I think you know, this can in itself be a prompt to growth. Whether these kinds of frames make sense, like if I was to think about, you know, that sentient ocean, you know, is it a transrational, rational, or pre-rational thing? I don't know. There's, there's not enough of a handle on that that I could get. And I, I definitely don't know if that human frame applies there, especially if that sentient ocean if I imagine it to actually be a real thing, I don't even know how to parse what's going on at the level that it appeared to be communicating. <laughs> um, it definitely was not in any realm of, of, of verbal exchange. <laughs> <laughs> what I think is so funny, perhaps particular to an integral comedic sensibility, is Wilbur's old axiom that from a rational perspective, the pre rational and the transrational both appear merely irrational. So consider this from the worldview of uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. From his rational worldview, the sentient ocean you perceived is no different than a toddler's imaginary friend. And this is a huge cultural issue for us. These rational figures and stations of real cultural import can't distinguish between pre-rational and post-rational experiences. That's problematic when it comes to disclosure because we're not going to separate the high strangeness, the transrational, from these phenomena any more than we will separate dirt from soil. Inevitably, sooner or later you end up with entities that can walk through walls that can control the temporal experience of abductees who communicate telepathically. The transrational list is as long as our arm. So what is the prognosis for disclosure? You said you feel like there's a soft disclosure underway. How far can it go given these elements? I think there's a, a real limitation there right now, and I even feel it in you know, the integral circle. I know that there are a number of integral acquaintances I have that would skewer me for even talking about these things publicly, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it looks to them also as, as just transrational, I mean, a pre-rational twaddle, you know, for them, it's just like nonsense. And that Bruce, why are you indulging in that magical thinking? And it's 
So even within the integral community that we're both part of, um, there are definitely people who will hold it that way. And I think, one, that that strong resistance to any hint of the non-rational entering the conversation and being taken seriously, that impedes people from sharing openly. That's one side of it. And the other, I think, is if we just look what happened around how much the, the country was able to get unhinged just from a series of repeated posts and tweets from 4chan and 8chan on the whole Q phenomenon and catch people up into what looks to me like a collective delusion, though there might be elements of truth that are running through that. But overall, it's playing with psychic fire to really start to bring some of this stuff out. At first, I thought that society would be able to handle disclosure of strangeness and things that seem to be under the surface of the ordinary appearance of things. But after watching what just happened to our U.S. culture, and it's actually happening globally around the whole QAnon phenomenon, I'm not sure we're equipped as the people to hold it all together if this stuff really started to come out. That's definitely given me pause on my view of the overall level of development and cognitive and emotional stability of the majority of the people in our country, or at least a vocal half <laughs> of the country. I, I'll probably get in trouble for saying those things too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you preemptively soiled yourself by coming on this show. So that ship has sailed. Soil me more. I love it. <laughs> So given that these are the conditions we find ourselves in, what's the best move for an experiencer? We've launched the experiencer group for reasons akin to those you've outlined. We wanted there to be support, community, understanding for experiencers of anomalous phenomena, a sanctuary environment free of trolls populated by other experiencers, private healing. But what do you feel are reliable resources for experiencers trying to constructively engage the puzzles they're living? I think what you're doing with the experiencer group is great. I belong to a few UFO groups on Facebook. I did that. I joined them mainly so I could share some of the dialogues that you and Sean and I and others have had. I find most of what's going on there consists of either pre-rational stuff or trolling. So there's not a lot of productive exchange going on there that I think really would help move the ball forward. So for you to create the space that you have for serious and respectful inquiry and for an ability to hold and roll with high strangeness without losing our centers, I think that's really valuable. And I think what Sean is doing with his exo studies is also valuable in terms of trying to bring our best current cognitive and emotional and artistic and aesthetic lenses to this phenomena, set of phenomena, and, and, and really trying to make the best sense of it as we can while remaining open towards constant evolution and reframing of our perspectives. I think that's very important. I don't know if we're quite ready for a super broad cultural movement in this direction, because I think it could easily turn into a cult or turn into attract a lot of pre-rational stuff that will bring it down. But I think concentrated islands where people can meet each other that our new media is allowing for now, these concentrated islands of people to really begin to 
make meaning together and try to make some progress in our understanding is really valuable. The whole movement towards women's liberation, it started not by a broad socially announced thing that this was going to take place, but by circles of women getting together and telling their stories to each other until they could see that their experience was shared and that they could begin to make sense of the problem landscape and begin to strategize around that, ultimately leading to some profound changes in society and the place that women have in society. It started with those circles, locally meeting circles where the stories were told and that they had space, safety, and freedom to really share their experience that eventually rippled out. And so I think for this whole disclosure community or the, you know, the whole ET and anomalous high strangeness, any of us who've been through that, I think the more that we can meet in such circles and begin to seriously sense make together, that's going to be valuable. I think the important thing is not to become a self-insulating echo chamber and only self-reinforcing where we don't allow ourselves to be challenged by outsider critical perspectives. I think that will be important. And I think an integral model can help us to strike that balance between creating safe containers, what I would call a generative enclosure, and remaining open towards outside sources of knowledge and input and and engaging with people outside those safe circles in order to reality test and to help us do our own shadow work. Beautifully put. I love that you landed and stuck the dismount on shadow work. It will be so critical in what's to come in the centuries ahead of us. Okay, so last question. One that I've been saving and savoring. It's about how your anomalous experiences have impacted your creativity. You've engaged in one of the coolest art forms that I know of, and that's conlanging or constructing a language. Do these respective realms of art and the anomalous converse in you? What is the relationship between being an experiencer and being an artist? Sure. I definitely feel that there has been an impact. Some of these early experiences led me to do a couple of things. One is to just try to explore in fictional form other possibilities of being, other forms of intelligence, other civilizations. And so I definitely pursued a number of years worth of of writing in the science fiction and fantasy areas. One, just for entertainment, but also I think because I think there's real depth philosophically, spiritually, culturally in what science fiction and fantasy can show us if we approach it in certain ways. Of course, there's the the archetypal and, and psychological depth of things that you can explore. But I think also, especially with science fiction, there's an invitation to really approach as close as we can the edges of our knowledge and what's knowable and to feel what is resonant, what is messianically hovering (laughs) at the horizons, knowing our current knowledge spaces to see what other forms of being might yet manifest, both in terms of our own future and in terms of just other cosmic possibilities. So these kinds of experiences have, on the one hand, 
just awakened in me a fascination with and a desire to approach the other uh, otherness in a way that can be self-illuminating, both so that I can learn from or draw close to enough that I can commune with and gather some new illumination from something that's very, very different from myself. And also just through that, letting it shine light back on me so that I can see more clearly the structure of my own presuppositions and frames and loosen those a little bit so that I have more creative room for how I move in the world and how I see and hold my own self-perception and world perception. So I've ventured in the area of language in a couple different directions. I, I used to try to find very, very different languages from English and just try to grasp how they are structured and how they make sense of the world. I, I dove into Navajo and or Diné language and other kinds of languages. I, I studied Chinese and Korean and Indonesian and Hindi, many different languages I've attempted to learn. In terms of my own conlanging, that early glossolalia, speaking in tongues type of experience, just awoken something resonant with me in the sense of a real power in language and a spiritual depth in language. Through David Bohm's work, especially his dialogues with Krishnamurti, but also his own reflections on meaning-making and on his project of the Rayo mode, where he tried to refashion English to be more verbal and process-centered. I was inspired by that, thinking about the fragmentation and the lack of coherence that we often experience psychologically, individually, and culturally, and the sense that language plays a role in that. While it may not be strictly determinative, it nevertheless plays a role in that. I got interested to test the boundaries of my own meaning-making to see what I could do there. And so I followed David Bohm's promptings, and I decided to try to create a language in which I could think and perceive and process the world in a very different way from how I normally do. And the task I set for myself was to create a language that did not use any nouns. If I just removed nouns, how could I speak about the world? And how would the world show up for me if I didn't break it up into those categories? And I can say that just holding that as a thought experiment pushed me multiple times into altered states and did you know, shift perception for me on multiple occasions. What I strictly tried to do was, or what it, what it ended up becoming, I, I should say, is a verbal language that relied on modification of verbs with person perspectives. So if there's no noun, there's no pronoun. So instead, I would speak about like dawn. If we witness three people witnessing a sunrise, the verbal grammatical form of that would be something like dawning here now in the mode of collective experiencing, something like that, where there's like a collective first-person experiencing mode of dawning, something like that. I could lay it out better in a formal way with some, some writing or something like that. But basically, there are multiple ways that you would frame it where there's the event and the person perspective. 
I made use of a number of different kinds of locatives that could contextualize where the experience was happening and how it was happening. I came up with a, a series of, of different other verbal endings that would describe the kind of process happening, whether it's transformation or manifestation or integration or other kinds of modes of the verbal event happening. And I, I was able to create, I guess, about a 500-word vocabulary for that and begin to exchange some letters with a friend who was geeky enough to compose a little poetry and things like that in it. I never took it beyond those years in my 20s when I created it, except I was inspired to create a new writing system at some point. And when I was in India, I used to eventually came up with a, a writing system for it as well. But for me, it was a, an experience of testing the boundaries of my perception and realizing that there really are radically different ways that we can order the world and communicate about the world and perceive the world that I think if deeply explored really would have a psychoactive effect on us. And I think that's an artistic project that not many people get into, but because of its psychoactive potential really is valuable. And why I've also really deeply appreciated what you're doing with is and in, in, in your own artwork. I'll give you a sample of the language just as it's spoken. Just so. Yes. That's just one sentence in there. Wow. That was part of a prayer that I composed for my family on Christmas morning, the day after I completed the language. <laughs> and basically, in English, it would say, God, we ask you, please be with us now um, this morning. That was the very first sentence. But in the language, there's a, a structure in the language where there's an opening phrase, which kind of like sets the context for everything else that follows. So, omalu means speaking to request. And then in our house this morning, basically, there are two verbs. One is sheltering, first person collective, ex you know, first person collective experience, and then dawning, first person witnessing experience. So, that means basically, yeah, in our house while the sun is rising, speaking to request in our house while sun is rising, divine presencing in the first person collective experience. I'm so on board with you ditching all the nouns. I mean, nouns are just dead verbs, right? <laughs> experience is process, is dynamism. Everything's alive. Even a stone is motion when perceived at the right scale and frequency. Your language sounds closer to the lived experience of an attentive, sentient being. I love it. What an elegant way to question and compare the filters we inherit versus those we may choose consciously. Bravo. I feel like you've changed the inner landscape. Is there anything else you feel is important to include that I missed? I was thinking... One thing to bring in, just because of my, please, some of my background in transpersonal and integral community, these kinds of anomalous experiences can be destabilizing and traumatizing. And it's really important to have some kind of support mechanism you know, that's available for people to, to process it. So the kind of circle that you're creating, and I think the kind of education that Sean's aiming at, and I think there are other worthy ventures in this area that I think are really important in transpersonal circles, they talk about spiritual emergency. And sometimes 
I think these uh, anomalous high strangeness experiences for people are kinds of spiritual emergencies in that they confront you with something that is basically paradigm breaking, paradigm busting, pops the semiotic bubble that you're used to inhabiting. And it can be transformative if, if you can hold it and work with it, but it can be traumatizing and highly disruptive, lead to a lot of suffering if you don't have a way to hold it. And, and one of the main ways that transpersonal psychologists will work with spiritual emergency is just to provide sets of frames, questions, and concepts that will help people to make some sense without it being too limiting, but to make some sense of the experience, at least to normalize the experience and give some tools to begin to use to parse what's happening in reality test with it, but also just to hold it as something that's within the realm of the possible and that you know, you're not alone in entering that territory. That alone is enough to tilt and shift the balance towards the possibility for fruitfully working with it and allowing it to become a transformative experience. So I just hope you know the kind of things that you're doing with your podcast and your community and, and other people are doing, that we can build these kinds of containers that can allow people to hold such experiences in a way that is not immediately pathologizing and also doesn't immediately indulge the pre-personal and pre-rational, but gives a space for really working fruitfully with all the existential questions that they raise for us. For more on Bruce Alderman, check the show notes. In the spirit of Bruce's beautiful and thought-provoking constructed language, and in celebration of the art of tongues, which experiencers sometimes create, I thought I would also share a passage in the his language, which is an art language I've been working on for years. I've been motivated by many of the same desires Bruce shared, including exploring other filters and fundamental assumptions in language. So here now is the first recitation to the goddess Psyche in his language. Eve thailavu kulai uro isifi menu orne ispire oikta avu arsia antis avu aisra bru avu ebra arven vau airesur uro Psyche od Aiki orne ajev, ed adu woau alus, eth uda woau suloth, ur othoi epaim oitho, kai oluz iwai remi, an ayan epaim naai, vau varo ewai thuvaro. Eve amaz orne isaiki. Lif uro aitekai. Eve alploi orne isaiki. Uid urle momiendres yiftail avu. Aliens and Artists is brought to you by The Liminal Muse, offering one-on-one sessions with me, Stuart Davis. 
Sessions include transpersonal hypnotherapy, past life regression, anomalous experiences, and creativity as a spiritual path. Go to theliminalmuse.com to book a session, or click the link in the show notes. Also, the Experiencer Group, a members-only site for experiencers of anomalous phenomena, out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, precognition, clairvoyance, lucid dreaming, remote viewing, abduction, contact with non-human entities, and more. This site is a private sanctuary offering community support and group meetups with others around the world who've had similar experiences. Click the link in the show notes and get one month free. Yo, man, where you get that hickey at? Patreon. How come your back ain't hurt no more? Patreon. Sperm counts down worldwide. Then how come your sperm count up? Patreon. How you skip grade eight? Patreon. Where you met Diddy at? Patreon. What happened when we die? Patreon. I... Where the universe stop at? Well then, what's on the other side right there? Patreon. Hey, what's the Wi-Fi? Patreon. Now hold up. A wave and a particle? Patreon.
chest Open your shell And offer me a pearl I am collecting A string of Jewish girls Come and